Welcome to Canthropod, the Cambridge Anthropology podcast. This is episode seven. I'm Rupert Stash, a lecturer in social anthropology at the University of Cambridge, and I recently sat down with Tanya Lorman, the Watkins University professor in the Department of Anthropology at Stanford University, to ask about her current research. Professor Lerman received her PhD from the University of Cambridge and in the years since has so far written four major anthropological books. Each of these books combines in-depth fieldwork and sophisticated questions of psychological and cultural theory with an unusually fluid and accessible writing voice. She has also been very effective in putting anthropological ideas into circulation in the public sphere. Her latest groundbreaking book was titled When God Talks Back, Understanding the American Evangelical Relationship with God. I met with Professor Lerman when she visited Cambridge to deliver the 2016 WHR Rivers Memorial Lecture. Her lecture was titled Local Theory of Mind, Why People Experience the Same God Differently in Different Parts of the World, and in it she reported on a comparative research project she has been carrying out in the United States, Ghana, and India, which we also discussed in our conversation. Growing out of your research for the book When God Talks Back, in recent years you've led a comparative research project Mm -hmm. on what it means to hear voices in different cultural settings. Could you say a little about that research and where it's taking you? One of the things I noticed in When God Talks Back and the work for When God Talks Back is that there was a story about the way that you paid attention to your mind and that act of paying attention seemed to change something about mental quality. It seemed to make inner experience more alive it helped people people when people prayed that they felt that god became more real to them they felt that their mental images became sharper it wasn't just about piousness there was something about the change in, in mental experience but i also noticed something else which is that americans had this very funny idea about their minds and i thought that that made a difference as well and i thought that that was the kind of thing that would be really cool to explore ethnographically. So I've been doing this project, and it's in effect two different comparative projects, asking the question about whether the way that you think about your mind uh, affects your mental experience. And I've been looking at that in two domains. One, I've been looking at the way that people hear God's voice and the experience of hearing God. And the other, I've been looking at psychosis. So just to be super clear, different groups of people, right? people who are religious over here and people who meet criteria for psychosis and schizophrenia over there. So I chose these parts of the world partly because they kind of have different ideas about minds and some broad brushstrokes. I was working in America, like the Bay Area, and I'd been doing some work in Chennai anyway. And I have these terrific psychiatric colleagues in Chennai and in you know and what you see in the ethnographic literature about india broadly speaking i'm not claiming that everybody thinks like this but it's a big kind of loose backdrop you get a sense in india that people are really intertwined in some way that people are individuals as marriott put it and you have a sense that you know seniors think about what juniors should be thinking they kind of know what juniors should be thinking Juniors are pretty interested in what seniors are thinking. And I knew that, that there was a sort of background of intense intersociality. And there's also this sort of remarkable claim that David Schulman um, spells out in some detail, that in some, in some ways, at least in the classical literature, what you imagine is what's real. That there's, that there's something about the act of the mind that's supernatural, that's different from the human mind, that's doing stuff in the world. So there's Chennai. 
And then there's, I'd always wanted to go to Ghana. I was, I came to the Cambridge department in Jack Goody's heyday. And so I happened to find somebody who would let me into a hospital in Ghana. So I went to Ghana. And one of the big ideas that floats around the Ghanaian cultural world is that there is witchcraft. Some people, not everybody, and you might not even believe in this, but there are some people who, when they have certain kinds of thoughts, envious, jealous, angry thoughts, those those thoughts can somehow go into the world and affect other people's bodies. So there's something a little more material about that thought, certainly more material than the way Americans think about thinking. And there's something, you know, a little more porous about the boundary between the the mind and the world. And in America, and arguably in the UK, it's pretty clear that people think a lot about their minds, that their minds are pretty separate from the world, that what's inside the mind is super important, but it's not really real, or at least it's not, it's very important, it affects your body. But it's not really part of the material world. So I chose these three places because they had different kind of ideas about thinking. And then I did a comparison. This is the caricature of the comparison of psychosis. Americans pretty clearly, at least in my sample, reported they hated their voices and their voices were violent and assaultive. And their voices were thin and they they didn't know who was speaking in Accra. Uh, Half the sample said that they heard God, that that was their only or predominant voice, and they they really liked God. And in Chennai, people said that they heard their kin who told them to clean up and do chores. And, um, you know, and of course it's a little messier than that, And and everybody who falls into this category, it's not as if people with schizophrenia in Ghana are having a lovely time. Everybody's in a hospital, everybody's, you know, carrying a diagnosis, everybody's, you know, struggling. But the, you know, the voice hearing experience was significantly more caustic in the United States, which doesn't mean that the voices are never negative in, you know, these other two settings. But as a general emphasis, not one of the Americans said that their predominant experience was positive. Not one. And 10 of the 20 folks in Ghana and 8 of the 20 folks in Chennai reported that they had predominantly positive voices. And so so I was struck by that. Americans experience their voices as alien, they are violent, and their voices are thin. There's a sense that, that they just feel more alien. Both in Chennai and Accra, the voices are more person-like. They are often thicker. This is particularly striking in Ghana. There are more emphasis, more references to the visual quality of the voices, which you don't really find in the States. And there's there and in, in Ghana, there's more an even richer sense of the personness of the voices. And there's this difference in sort of moral valence. That is really that that is really striking. So th- so that's that comparison. Now, what I've been doing more recently is to compare the experiences of talking with God. And what I've done the first part of this project is to c- compare people in churches. I looked for these new charismatic evangelical churches, recognizable because they're big, and. Accra and Chennai, they have English-speaking congregations. 
They have, um, you know, big PowerPoint. There's pastors fly all over the place internationally. They give talks. You know, everybody's reading more or less the same books. There are more or less the same books in the bookstores. And these congregations definitely emphasize talking with God. I arrive. I spend four to six weeks in each place, all, all told. And I, I really set out to get, get to interview 20 people in the Accra church and 20 people in the Chennai church who were similar kinds of people. So they tend to be pastors or they're from the pastorate or they're training to be pastors or they're you know, very closely involved with the church or they're being paid by the church in some way. So they're pretty active members of the church. And I sat with them for at least an hour apiece and I asked them basically... How do you pray? What's prayer like for you? Uh, would you say that God speaks to you? Can you tell me more about that? Uh, can you give me some examples? And then I, at the end I sort of, of each interview, I sort of walked through what I think of as the William James questions. Have you ever heard a voice when, you're, when you've been alone? Did you hear it with your ears? Was it outside your head? Did you turn to see who was speaking? Have you ever seen something? Well, what about God? Has God ever spoken audibly to you? Have you ever felt the presence of God? Tell me what that's like. Have you ever experienced God present in the room and he knew exactly where he was sitting? Tell me about that. What about demons? Have you ever had an out-of-body experience? Do you know what that is? Can you explain that to me? You do get this comparison that's kind of like the experience in talking to people about psychosis. When you talk to Americans about hearing from God, they give you a narrative framework. They talk to you about hearing God in their mind. They give you a back and forth. Back and forth. It's not scriptural. They make it up. I mean, they're comfortable using their imagination as the vehicle to know God. They don't think that God is imaginary, but it's totally fine to represent that narrative structure. And it turns out that people can hear from God in a bunch of different ways. The three dominant ways are people hear from God in their mind. They have to identify a thought that they learn to recognize not as their thought, but as generated by God. So it's not self-generated, but by other, but other generated. Or you can hear God through people. You might go for a walk. You've been praying about something. You've been thinking about something. You run into a person. The person says something. You realize, oh my goodness, this is the answer to my dilemma that I've been praying about. And you can hear from God through scripture. So you're reading the, the, the text and a verse jumps out at you and you realize, yes, this is what God is directing me to, to this verse. I identify a group of interviews that count as my American sample, um, which were these very structured interviews that were done with part of this process for the, for the research for when God talks back. You look at those interviews and they really emphasize hearing from God in the mind. You look at the Ghanaian interviews they really emphasize hearing from God through scripture. So they're doing the same thing the Americans are doing, except they're, you know, they're lying on their beds with a, with a Bible open. And so they're talking, talking, talking to God. And God is saying Isaiah 2.16 or something. I mean, he's, he's giving you a, a particular verse to look at, or a person is reading their Bible and talking to God, and their, their eye falls on a particular verse. And that they can tend to emphasize hearing from, from God that way. In, in Chennai... People kind of emphasize hearing from God through people. I mean, it really does kind of fall out in a way that's not unlike the experience of psychosis. The other thing that you can look at pretty carefully is when people talk about hearing God speak audibly. 
So 35% of the Americans say that, say that God has spoken audibly. 45% of the folks in Chennai and 55% of the folks in Accra. And you look at what the Americans do, and they're having plenty of unusual sensory experiences, but they're only willing to identify them as meaningful and as, as the voice of God. You know, only 35% of them will do that. When God speaks, uh, he tends not to speak during sleep. So Americans don't talk about sleep. God tends to be very, uh, very colloquial, very personal. So the folks in Chennai, when God speaks, they tend to devalue the unusual sensory experience that's not from God. But they are more likely to say that they have heard God speak audibly. And they do this really interesting thing that I had not been expecting, which is that they will mark a domain in the mind that's not human, but also not material. So I say, so, did you hear it with your ears? No, 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 it was wide awake inside of me strong. Or <laughs> it was in my spirit sense. They, they mark it, they don't have a word for it. But they do, kind of do what the ancient Talmud texts seem to do, which is to mark this domain that is not human and purely thought-like, and not material, but somehow different. In Accra, first of all, God is more moralistic. So when God speaks and people hear him with their, their ears, he's commanding, you know, cover your, plas your pastor with blood, or I ordained you, quoting Jeremiah, I ordained you as, as a prophet. And they're much more likely to be comfortable with the idea of hearing God with their ears. And there's this kind of default mode that I would see people go into in which they will sort of indicate that if God is speaking, it almost should be auditory. Three of that sample of 20, I ask them up, down, and sideways, with your ear, out in the world, turn your head. And they insisted that they were hearing from God audibly more than once a week, which is unusual. And so it seems like there's this invitation to, to think about thought as being sort of somehow interwoven with the world, as not, the mind is not being so porous. It also seems to be reflected in the way people talk about God. The other thing that's really striking about both Chennai and, and Accra is that sleep is all over those transcripts. So it turns out, just from a human perspective, you're more likely to report a sensory experience of audition between sleep and awareness. So arguably the most common hallucination-like experience that humans have is hearing their mom call their name as they're falling to sleep. So Americans aren't not talking about sleep, but it's all over the transcripts for Accra and Chennai, and particularly for Accra. And I noticed I would go back through the transcripts and it would take a couple of sentences sometimes to figure out that people are, were talking about a dream. So there seem to be these differences that seem to reflect something about the ways people think about thinking. The less emphasis you put on internal experience as something you articulate as being separate from the world, the more likely you are to report external quasi-auditory experiences. Is that finding of cognitive reflexivity being consequential in those kinds of ways, is that a robust finding already in other areas of psychology or psychological anthropology that, and you're sort of running parallel to some lines of inquiry already, or are you kind of out on your own? So I think I have two things to say. On the one hand, certainly the psychological research on meditation 
suggests that paying attention to, you know, or disattending to mental behavior, so you behave differently about your about your mental action, changes your mental action. I don't think that works done done so much with prayer. I have to say that I realize that I really based this work on Julian Jaynes. He wrote a, a book that came out in 1976. It is a slightly mad book, but it is such a brilliant book. But his claim was that in the Iliad, if you look at the language of the Iliad, the language of archaic Greece, there are no words for thinking as such. The words for thinking and feeling are very physicalist. They're very rooted in the body, and they don't and there's no term for mind per se. And so Jane says, you know, every time there's an act in the Iliad that requires some thought, you really have a god showing up and doing it. So Achilles is mad because his mistress is taken by Agamemnon, and it's a god who shows up and grabs him by, grabs him by his hair and says, you cannot go get her back. And Jane's actually argues that the archaic Greeks are hallucinating, that, um, and this is the origin of religion. So this is a pretty strong claim. I wouldn't quite go there, but I would. I do think that the this data supports the the general claim. So we know that people are more likely to have thoughts that seem external to them, thoughts that seem to be sensory in quality. Or they have, they report sensory experiences without a sensory cause in moments of great agitation, when they're emotionally aroused and under other conditions. And I think that, that what James describes accurately is that if somebody does not have a vocabulary for inner experience, and if they ha- when they have a powerful thought, they're more likely to experience that thought as having an external anchor of some sort. So in both projects, uh, the one on prayer and the other on psychosis, you both their, one of their parallels is you're linking hearing of voices to theory of mind. Yes. In your own thinking of these, this body of research, does one or the other of those have priority? Is it about using the phenomenon of hearing voices to learn more about local theory of mind as a mm-hmm. phenomenon, or is it using and, and noticing local theory of mind to learn more and understand two different kinds of hearing voices as phenomenon, or both equally and at once? Or... I think, so I think of the theory of mind as more the theory and the, the voices as more the data. Yeah. So, um, and we'll see how the project unfolds. So I've just gotten money to do this work properly with people who are comfortable with the language of these local domains and the idea is to do this in five different countries. And and the idea there is to do two interviews and do more than that, but, you know, in in our comparable sample, to to have two hour-long interviews with each subject and have one of them be about spiritual experience and the other be about mind. So when I think about mind, I think there are three, four, five different salient characteristics that might vary across cultures. One of them is how separate the mind is perceived as being from the world. Another is interiority, how important is the interior experience. 
And another would be realness. How real, it, for example, is the imagination? And there are other things like, um, this, like the senses, are, 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 you know, what senses are valorized. But what we're currently planning, but we'll see how this unfolds, is to do an interview about thinking about thinking, uh, and with each of the subjects who also where we interview about spiritual experience, and to prompt people there with different vignettes to see how they respond. Because I think I, I initially had a, a colleague do some, a Ghanaian colleague do some thinking about thinking interviews, theory of mind interviews in Ghana. And as she was talking, I mean, the interviews were, were great, but people often say the same kinds of things, you know, as the Americans do. So so not so useful. But I think they'll respond differently to vignettes. So that's what we're thinking to try to do to try to do it properly. Certainly, theoretically, the introduction of the idea of local theory of mind, I think, is kind of that is kind of interesting. I mean, I think the theory of mind research and the, and psychology, I mean, it's sort of run its course in some ways, and we know a lot about that. And the idea that different kinds of people have different theories of mind is also out of the bag because people talk about people with autism as having an impoverished theory of mind and people with schizophrenia having an overactive theory of mind at least when they're paranoid so we'll, we'll see how that unfolds we call it theory of mind i would imagine one of the difficult things about it methodologically is so much of it unfolds at the level of assumptions and right tacit models rather than right. overt models. And if I mm -hmm. try to reflect about my own mental process, also I have a feeling there's a lot of different theories of mind that flit in and out of how I monitor my own activity and consciousness. Absolutely. Um, so it's a very difficult area to go into, and that's part of what makes your yeah. research so pioneering. Have there been surprises about ways it was actually easy to access theory of mind, or surprises about ways it was difficult where you didn't expect it to be difficult, or what kinds of things have happened methodologically along the way as this subject matter came into focus for you? So right now I'm, I'm basically just waving my hand about theories of mind, so, yeah. but, but, but the way that I, I do it is, is say... Okay, what do we know from the ethnographic literature that's really blunt and out there? Yeah. And so witchcraft is just out there. It's not hard. It's and you you arrive in Ghana, and in my experience, it was stunning that so many of these cosmopolitan, sophisticated, English-speaking, professionally oriented people were comfortable talking about witchcraft. Either, and certainly, even if they didn't believe in it, they were certainly comfortable talking about it. I think that, um, you know, we're, we're going to take this work into Oceania, in part because of some, some of the work that you do. It's just bluntly clear that there's something that you call opacity of mind. People, you know, are willing to verbalize and behave as if people aren't supposed to see into each other's minds. Now, I mean, then you've pointed this out, that that may be a signal that people are, in fact, acutely interested in other people's minds. And so we'll see what happens in these interviews about thinking about thinking. But it's those blunt differences that I think that 
one can work with. So like the bluntest thing about Chennai is is really this individual stuff. I mean, it's just all over the ethnographic literature. It's all over the uh, interactions. And, and so it may be that these interviews about thinking about thinking won't turf up anything at all. But I think we will find differences in spiritual experience. So another difference in spiritual experience that I think is so amazing. We ask, I ask all these people, whether they've had an out-of-body experience. An out-of-body experience means that you are comfortable conceptualizing your mind or something about that you that's immaterial zipping off and floating around the world, or at least around the room. So we asked that question to Americans. 40% of the, of the sample says yes. And then you look at what they say, and half of them aren't describing anything remotely like you know, an out-of-body experience. They just like the idea of the mind leaving their body. Whereas, you know, in Accra, it's pretty clear that if your mind leaves your body, you're either dead or you're a witch. And so nobody is willing to admit that they've had such an experience. What does that tell you about actual experience? That's a complicated question. But it's not as if you can hook somebody up to some EKG. In the lab, you can generate experiences that people will report as out-of-body experiences. I don't think we have a bodily trace that is uniquely associated with the out-of-body experience. You know, so this is a phenomenological project. You're, you're trying to pay a lot of attention to the quality of, peop- of experience people are, are sharing with you. So the tr- strategy is to assume that ethnography is accurate to some extent, look at blunt differences between places that should reflect on ways of thinking or cultural invitations to think about thinking, and then to be as careful as we can be in describing supernatural experience and see if those line up. And we'll do a bunch of other stuff to see if we can be more confident about that as well. One of the remarkable characteristics of your research career is you've again and again combined fully formed ethnographic methodologies with psychological and mm-hmm. phenomenological complexity. Mm-hmm. And that's not always been something anthropologists have been able to accomplish. And that, and really remarkably, you've done that on a, a very long series of different fully formed right. ethnographic studies. Since we're meeting in Cambridge, I wanted to ask about Persuasions of the Witch's Craft yeah. and, and where you are now. Yeah. The work that led to Persuasions of the Witch's Craft was done here during your doctoral studies in yeah. Cambridge. And witchcraft has come up again in the current work, but are there mm-hmm. other levels at which you think your questions have stayed the same, and are there levels at which they've changed since Persuasions of the Witch's Craft? In some sense, they've absolutely stayed the same. But I would say that the push to psychology actually came out of the questions I couldn't answer in persuasions. And it really comes out of the way I got to those questions. So I thought when I began that work that I was doing Evans Pritchard in London. And you know, that was what was fun about it. And I would see these narratives, these ways of talking that would make sense of how people came to experience the magic is real. So these are middle-class people. They are calling themselves witches and magicians. They are doing magic. They think that there are forces in the world. They're manipulating them with their minds. Now, Evans Pritchard does report that when he was hanging out with the Azanda, he saw this ball of fire, this ball of light, that that was a trip. So he had some kind of trace, some kind of experience. But, you know, that was just there in the text for me. I was hanging out in the, with these magicians, and 
I started having these experiences. Not so often, but I would feel magic moving through my body. It's like, whoa, and I felt this like electrical charge move through me. I would go to a ritual event, and not so often, but a few times, and have this vivid inner imaginative experience of the god. Uh, and one morning, I woke up and I saw these druids standing by the window. So I was reading the right kind of book to have that experience. It was the Mists of Avalon. You know, 40% of people, if they're paying attention, have you know, sensory experiences between sleep or, or awareness. This is the first time it had happened to me that it had, was a meaningful event. I saw these, witches, uh, these, these druids. I shot out of bed, and then they disappeared. But I wrote it down in my dream diary, which we, I kept a dream diary because that's what we did. And it really startled me. And I didn't know how to make sense of that. And I was going to do something like that for my second project. And in effect, I got the advice that I shouldn't do it because that was weird stuff. And it wasn't really until I had done this work with psychiatrists that I had a language and a way of thinking about these experiences that would help me make sense of them and would help me understand that, in fact, these experiences are not so unusual, that there is a physiology or at least a psychology of these experiences. And you can, if you read the right literature, you can find out something about them. And that there should be reasons to think about their cultural variation and that they're just kind of interesting experiences because on the one hand they are unwilled so you can't decide to have a hallucination-like experience and when you have the event it is surprising on the other hand they're sort of complexly dependent on expectation awareness phenomena the way you're paying attention so there's something complicated going on that an anthropologist is good at describing I sort of feel like I'm now finally figuring out at least the psychological and cultural side of what the witches were up to and, you know, demonstrating that it's not just a way of talking. It's something that people really experience. And so a big thank you to Tanya Lerman for speaking with me during her visit to Cambridge to deliver the 2016 WHR Rivers Lecture. For more information about Professor Lerman's research, you can visit her website, Lurman.net, L-U-H-R-M-A-N-N dot N-E-T.